0: Can't grow up without first sending your roots down. If you want to grow tall, if you want some strong, majestic branches, brother, sister, send your roots down deep. That's what this series is all about. We're so excited to walk through the Book of Ephesians this fall. Uh, we will be here for about the next twelve Sundays, and uh, we will delve deep into the themes in this rich letter: themes of identity and community, and even warfare. And so let's commit our sermon series to the Lord with a word of prayer. Would you bow with me? God, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we pray that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we might know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of your inheritance, and what is the surpassing greatness of your power towards everyone who believes. God, this week we also remember, tomorrow being September 11th, that this day reminds us of a day in American history where some of our best people were killed and our nation stopped for the horror visited upon it. And so we pause to remember. Pray that you would help us never forget and burn into our individual and collective memory that loss of life. We pray for your continued compassion and consolation and mercy on those who suffered. Remind us, God, that life is short. Each day we have is a gift. Help us to resolve not to squander them, but to appreciate each day as a gift from you, as an opportunity to live in this country where we're free to serve as you taught us to serve, live as you taught us to live, love as you taught us to love, for your beautiful name. And all God's people said, amen. About 10 years ago in Georgia, a man was found there with no identity. He was beaten. He was found uh, naked uh, behind this Burger King. They took him to the hospital. Eventually, he regained consciousness, uh, but he had had total amnesia. For the last 10 years, no one can figure out who this guy is. The FBI did fingerprints. They did DNA testing. They couldn't figure it out. Dr. Phil did a TV show nationwide. Nobody claimed to know this man. Imagine, you have no idea who you are, and nobody else does either. Sounds like a nightmare. Ladies and gentlemen, while the chances are low that you'd ever find yourself in such a situation, the chances are high that you might say, face a similar crisis on a spiritual and emotional level. An identity crisis. When your family life, or your career life, or your educational path doesn't pan out as you expected. You might be in danger of an identity crisis. And so our question this morning as we turn to God's word is a sober one. It's right here. Who am I? Who am I? If I asked you that question this morning, what would your answer be? Would you talk about your role in your family? I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm, I'm my parents' son, I'm my wife's husband... Would you talk about your intellect, your education? I'm, I was smart. I'm, I'm, I'm not that smart. I, I got my degree from here, or I, I didn't go to college. Would you talk about your heritage? I'm American. I'm Italian. I'm Mexican. I'm black. I'm white. Ancestry.com has seen a huge increase in their sale of DNA testing to find out the answer to this one question. Who really am I? Do you identify closely with your politics? I'm a a Republican. I'm I'm a Democrat. I'm a Libertarian. How about your age group? Well, I'm a buster. I'm a Boomer. I'm, I'm part of Gen X. I'm a Millennial. It's a question we all ask ourselves, and sometimes we allow other people to answer that for us. It starts when we're little. Were you the firstborn? Were you the baby in the family? Were you the middle child? What were you like? Were you the funny kid? Were you the nerdy kid? Were you the sporty kid? Do you have any nicknames? Who am I? It's a good question. More importantly, are you happy with the answer to that question? Because whatever the answer is, it'll have a huge impact on your life. It impacts everything. Everything about you, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It impacts the choices you make. It impacts the, the risks you take. Your identity is such a powerful, powerful thing. Now here's the question behind this question. Who has the right to answer that? Who has the right to answer that question? We all have to have an answer, but the real question is where do we get that answer? Here's why that's even more important for followers of Jesus. We have an enemy. And if we're not careful, we will allow him to take a bunch of messages and provide a soundtrack for our lives. Now, don't be alarmed, but I just want to play you an example of the kind of soundtrack that I'm talking about because the enemy will be right at your door every single morning, and you'll wake up hearing messages like this.
1: I'm going to mess this up again. You are not going to make it. This is too big to overcome. You should have known better. You might as well give up. This is where it all falls apart. You are never going to recover from this. Something bad is going to happen to you. This is never going to work out. God has completely forgotten about you. Don't even think that there is a way through this. I wonder what other terrible things are going to happen. No one cares about you. No one is pulling for you. The worst thing that could happen will happen. God has abandoned you. You are never going to survive this. You should feel afraid. What if no one likes you after this? What if no one talks to you anymore? You are headed for disaster. Think of all the awful things that might occur. There's no hope.
0: You see, nobody wakes up and says, I think I'm going to live my life under a curse. You know, you have an adversary. You know what's scary about that? It's more deceptive. It doesn't sound like an evil, scary voice in your head when you listen to it. It might sound like your own voice. It sounds like the voice of your dad or your mom or one of your peers or a teacher. It could be a message from the culture. And Satan will take that and he will twist it and and use those messages that you've received and put this soundtrack in your head here's what's amazing to me right now during this message i have your complete and undivided attention and i think the reason is because you know this voice
1: touch turns to stone there is nothing good in your future everything you've worked for will be lost you are going to be found out people are going to hate you your chances don't look good this is the end of the road just face it you're not bouncing back from this. There's no second chances anymore. Don't bother trying.
0: Friends, those are lies. They might be lies from the world. They might be lies from the culture. They might be lies from from your own flesh. But the enemy will take them and like making a grease fire, will use them to spin his web of lies and create this soundtrack for your life. And it doesn't have to be this way. You can allow God to shape your identity instead. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 is all about. Turn there with me if you have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. It's only six short chapters, but it packs a powerful punch. One commentator, Klein Snodgrass, said this, quote, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. Unquote. It's been called the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Recently, I had the opportunity to meet David Pallison, one of the top Christian biblical counselors in this country. He said this quote, The Bible is vast and deep, and human life is diverse and perplexing, but in a pinch, you could do all counseling from Ephesians, it's all there. The big picture that organizes a myriad of details, Ephesians aims to teach you how to live. Wow. Dive with me off the high dive into the deep end of the pool of chapter one, verses one through fourteen. These beginning verses are one long, humongous sentence in the original Greek. No English translation tries to make it one sentence. They put punctuation because it just—it's very hard to do that. But it is just awesome. One writer said that Paul is writing in a state of controlled ecstasy. He's swept away by all God has done in His Son. To me, when I read Ephesians 1, it's a little bit like at the end of the fireworks show when they have the finale, and these bombs just keep going off one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, and you just, it just ends, and you're, wow, that's Ephesians chapter 1. So let's take a look at some of those verses. I want to read the passage, and then we'll get back and see the details. If you're ready for God's word, say amen. amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And all God's people said, the passage here is packed with spectacular theological insights. Go back to verse 1 just for a moment. Notice he begins by addressing his audience as saints in Christ Jesus. Hagias, the word means to be set apart, to be holy unto the Lord, a saint. Now, does that mean the people at Ephesus were, were exceptionally holy? No. They are saints by position in Christ Jesus. For you technical people, originally the word Ephesus was not found in the earliest copies of this letter. Scholars believe this was originally a circular letter that went to all of the churches in the Asia Minor region, and it ended up at Ephesus where they got their name slapped on the front. The point is, if we are in Christ Jesus, all of, the, all of us, we are saints, and it is our position in him that makes us holy. That is who we are. So in terms of our identity, let's just start right there. I am a saint. Can you say that with me? I am a saint. Now, some of you, you read that and you almost snickered. And you have a choice this morning. You can either believe what you think about you Or you can believe what God says about you. This is what God says. It's not what I say. I'm just reading the text. As is any preacher, my job is not to cook up something new. I'm a waiter. God already made it in the kitchen. I'm just my job is to bring it to you, sizzling hot. That's it. This is what God says about you. God's word says you're a saint. The reason this is so important for us to grasp is when it comes to the Christian life, our identity drives our behavior. Our identity drives our behavior. In other words, who we are determines what we will do, not the other way around. In Ephesians, Paul will spend the first three chapters talking about who we are, our identity, before he gets to chapter 4 through 6 and begins to discuss what we should do. That's why we've titled this series, Rooted. Because we want to make sure our our identity is rooted first in Christ and set that foundation so the tree can grow. Now here's something you have to understand about this book. There is a distinction between the indicatives and the imperatives in the whole Bible, but especially in Ephesians. Indicatives are statements of fact. Imperatives are commands. In other words, the indicatives of this book tell us what is true, The imperatives tell us what to do. Let me just give you an example. In Ephesians, an indicative would be you are accepted in the beloved, whereas an imperative would be husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Make sense? Indicatives tell us who we are. Imperatives tell us what to do. If you get those in the wrong order, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You see, the imperatives of Ephesians show me what it looks like to be holy. But they don't have the power to generate holiness. The imperatives of this book show me what love looks like, but they don't have the power to generate that love. We tend to be hardwired for skipping over to the imperatives of chapter 4. That's kind of the American way. I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, turn over to to chapter 4 and get to work. I did it my way. There's no free lunch. Really what that is is a performance-driven, works-based righteousness, if you think about it, then we have to be very careful about that mentality, especially in the Christian life. Because we begin to look for things that we can do to make us feel right with God by our actions, and then if we do something wrong, our solution is to try to work on our resume a little more so we can now appease God. That's not the way it works. First of all, that's not the gospel. That is not the message of the book of Ephesians. Second of all, it is not practical. It doesn't actually work when you try it. Third, what's worse, the problem with that is the motivation is so wrong that the center of that becomes the self. And the glory goes back to me instead of towards God, which is how it's supposed to work. So the first three chapters here, all indicatives. First doctrine, than duty. If you're with me, say amen. Drop down to verse 3 for a moment. Verse 3 makes an, an astonishing claim. It says in verse 3, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. The word every there is a word of totality. Now, a blessing in the New Testament is not often what we think of here in America, meaning a material blessing or a physical blessing. They're explicitly said to be spiritual blessings. What is that? Let me define it this way every joy and every benefit that my heart and my soul needs and longs for. A spiritual blessing is every joy, every benefit that my heart and my soul needs and longs for. That's what it means to be blessed. And that's what he says you have already, past tense. Let's go on to point number two about our identity. Not only am I a saint, I am blessed can we say that together? I am blessed. Not that you're going to get blessed one day in the future. Not that you're going to strive to be blessed. Not that you're going to work to be blessed. You already are blessed. Amazing. You say, what kind of blessings exactly are you talking about? Well, he goes on to list them. Let's just go back to Ephesians chapter one. One of those blessings is found in verse four. It says, he chose us. He chose us. It says here, he chose us before the foundation of the world. Just think about that for a second. Before everything, God chose you in Christ. Before he made the planet, he chose you. Before he caused the stars to burst into existence, he chose you. Before he made the oceans, he chose you. Before the foundation of the world. Isn't that amazing? See, salvation is not an afterthought on God's part like plan B. No. His purpose was always to create a people for himself. So let's talk about our identity again. Point number three about our identity is very clear, isn't it? I am chosen. Can we say that together? I am chosen chosen. It's a word used in the scriptures to describe picking one thing out of many things for a specific purpose. For example, it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe King David going down to the brook and choosing for himself five smooth stones to go after Goliath. Choosing something out of many for a specific intent and for a specific purpose. Here it says God has done that with you. Now, that doesn't mean he chose you based on how wonderful you are. It's found here actually in in the middle voice, which means he chose us by himself for himself. In spite of us, really, before we would do anything. I'm actually glad he chose me before I would do anything, because if it was after I would do anything, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have chosen me. He chose you. Go back to that passage. Look look at verse 5. There's this word that kind of jumps off the screen. It's the word adoption. Brought into a new family. It means an orphan now becomes a child. Just think of that. Not just any family. Into the family of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So let's go back to that identity list. Next point. I am adopted. Can we say that? I am adopted. Have you ever wondered what life is like for kids whose parents are famous or dignitaries? Like the Trump's kids or the Obama's kids. Or You know, imagine your dad was really, really important. Like, like let's say he is the president. Anybody else tries to get close to your dad without an appointment, they'll be stopped. They might even be shot. Here it says you are a child of the Most High God. You can come right in unannounced with all the access, all the security, all the inheritance that comes with your position simply because you're in the family. Romans 8 says that we cry out to him, Abba, Daddy, Father. Wow. Notice in verse 6 that there's a clause given with the word grace. The word keratos there means unmerited favor, unmerited favor. No one knew this better than the Apostle Paul. Grace had to literally come down and knock that guy off of his high horse. No one had been more opposed to grace than Saul of Tarsus. No one had been captured by grace quite like this young man. He knew what it was like to live in the bonds of legalism in barren ritual, in hollow routine. But now he has come to know the reality of grace. And now he's come to know this, that in Christ our identity is not achieved, it is received. Our identity is not achieved, it is received by grace. That's so counterintuitive. We think God's favor is reserved for people who get it right. That's not what the scriptures say. Instead, it says God gives his favor to those who don't get it right. Period. Full stop right there. Wow. Grace is reckless, recklessly generous. It's even uncomfortable. When it comes to God's grace, there's no stick and there's no carrot. There's no merit badge, there's no time cards, there's no punch cards. There's no keeping score. There's no deservedness at all. Which is why it's hard to grasp. It doesn't make natural sense to us. This isn't the way the world works. But yet this is the way God works. Perhaps no one understood this better in our generation than Brennan Manning. Listen to this quote from his final book before he passed away. God loves you unconditionally. As you are, and not as you should be. Because nobody is as they should be. It's the message of grace. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up 10 to 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. Compassion. It works without asking anything of us. This is what makes Christianity radically different than any other religious system. Every other system is based on bottom up, work your way up the ladder, pay your dues, earn it. Christianity says, no, it's not about working your way up to God, it's about God working his way down to you. It's not about what you can do, it's what he has done. It's not about your faithfulness, it's about his faithfulness. Paul will later say, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works, lest any man should boast. We'll get there. Look at what it says in verse 8. He didn't just give us a little bit of grace. It says that he actually lavished his grace upon us. He doesn't just dole out his grace in little bitty bite-sized pieces. He's like, here, dump the whole truckload. Here's my son. How many of you know the, the perfect son of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the God was actually an overpayment for our sin? He could have saved any number of worlds with his redemption. It's like, let's say you owe me five bucks and you come up to me, you're like, here, Dave, here's a million. He lavished his grace on us. This is where we get to the whole idea of forgiveness and redemption in this passage. Forgiveness and redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of his sins. Forgiveness. It's a word that means a cancellation of all of your debts. You know, not far outside of New York City, there's a cemetery where there's a grave which has inscribed on its headstone one word, Forgiven. No name, no date of birth, no date of death, no epitaph, just that one word, forgiven. Ultimately, whether you're forgiven by God is all that matters. The word redemption there means to buy back and to set free. To buy back and to set free. Can we say that together? To buy back and to set free. It comes from the slave market. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. They were oftentimes bought and sold. But if you were to redeem a slave, you would buy the slave not for the purpose of owning the slave, for the purpose of setting the slave free. Wow. So let's take two points of identification at once. He tells us here, number one, I am redeemed, and number two, I am forgiven. Can we say that together? I am redeemed... I am forgiven. Now, I know some of us are getting a little uncomfortable because you say, Well, Pastor Dave, if you preach like this, people are just going to do whatever they want to do. This is going to encourage people to have a license to sin. Brothers and sisters, as a pastor, I have noticed something. People sin even without a license. Have you noticed that? What we learn throughout this series and in the gospel, though, is that it's grace that gives me the power to overcome sin. Let me just try to give you an illustration. During the Civil Wars, before America's slaves were freed, there was this northerner who went to a slave auction and purchased a young slave girl. As they walked away from the auction, though, uh, the man turned to the girl and said, you're free. He had redeemed her. With amazement... She responded, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do? Yes, he said. And to say whatever I want to say? Yeah. And to go wherever I want to go? Yeah. And to be whatever I want to be? Yeah. Then she goes, then I want to be with you. Hmm. If you're a Christian... And you've been redeemed. And you really have been bought by Jesus Christ. Our response is the same. Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. One final point about our identity. A little bit later in the passage, a question might come to mind. Is there anything I could ever do to forfeit these spiritual blessings? And he tells us in verse 13, no, You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The word sealed there in the ancient world was used for the purpose of validation. It was a signature of ownership. You've been sealed. That means you belong to God. The language here of the guarantee is that of putting down a massive down payment. You buy a house, you put down 30, 40%. That means you're coming back to finish the payments. One day, we will be in glory. Our full redemption will be finished. But until then, we have been given a massive down payment in the Holy Spirit. And we can trust God to finish what He started. Amen? So that's the final point about our identity. I am sealed. Can we say that together? I am sealed. How can we be so sure? Because it doesn't depend on us. It depends on him. That's how we can be so sure. Heard about this grandfather who was taking a walk with his little granddaughter, having a great time, but it was a little bit rainy, and it was a little bit slippery outside. The grandfather said, sweetheart, hold on tightly to my my hand with your little hand. The granddaughter goes, no, Grandpa, you hold on tightly to my little hand. She understood the difference. What she was saying was that if her security on that slippery surface was dependent upon her strength and her ability, she was going to fall. But if rather he was willing to hold firmly upon her, even if she slipped, he could still hold her up. You've been sealed. As Paul says elsewhere, I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. 1 Timothy 1.2. This whole work of salvation, this whole work of redemption from beginning to end is all of God. Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father appointed our salvation before time. God the Son accomplished our salvation in his time. God the Spirit applies our salvation in our time. This passage has 24 verbs in it. 20 of them describe actions that God does for our hours. Verse 3, God blesses. Verse 4, God chooses. Verse 5, God predestines. Verse 5, God adopts. Verse 6, God bestows grace. Verse 7, God redeems. Verse 7, God forgives. Verse 8, He lavishes. Verse 9, God makes known and He purposes. Verse 10, God unites together in Christ. Verse 11, God works. Verse 13, God seals. The four that we do, we listen, we receive, we hope. We believe you say What's, what part of salvation are we responsible for one of my seminary profs said well you did all the sinning jesus did all the saving all the glory goes to him that way there's this phrase that gets repeated three times in this passage i don't know if you noticed it to the praise of his glorious grace to the praise of his glorious grace to the praise of his glorious grace And here's where we begin to understand there's a bigger story going on here. And frankly, you and I are not the stars of this story. This story is not even about us at all. It's not about you. The very idea that I think it should be about me is in of itself part of my identity crisis problem. This is why the biblical diagnosis and the biblical solution to this problem is not the same as our society, whether it be the educational system or the prison system or any other recovery system. The the biblical solution is not try to increase your self-esteem, which is exactly what our educational system says to do. We're told the main problem, Dave, is you view yourself too low. You need a bigger view of yourself. The book of Ephesians says that's not the problem. The problem is you've made yourself too big. You've rejected God as the center of your life. you placed yourself there. As a result, you're not big enough to make it work, and you got all kinds of problems with your self-esteem. That's why you think about yourself all the time. If something doesn't work on your body, that's when it draws attention to yourself, right? How many of you walked in here and you're like, you know... My elbow is working great today. Man, it just feels awesome. No, you don't even notice your elbow if it's working fine. (laughs) The fact that the self draws attention to it should tell you something's wrong. Listen to what Soren Kierkegaard said in his excellent book, Sickness Unto Death. It is the natural state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. He calls that spiritual pride. It's the whole idea that you have the ability to find a sense of identity and purpose and achieve a sense of worth in and of yourself that's big enough to give you meaning apart from God. That doesn't work. And for sure, it doesn't produce any lasting change in our lives. Look at what David Pallison said. Self-manufactured changes do not dislodge almighty me from the center of my tiny, self-manufactured universe. That's so huge. I'm just going to read it again. Just just let it wash over you. Self-manufactured changes do not dislodge almighty me from the center of my tiny, self-manufactured universe. The solution is not to increase my self-esteem. The the solution is to increase my Christ-esteem. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Here's the key to understand all that Paul is saying. If there's one phrase that I just want to drill down today and see if we can strike oil, it is this phrase right here. In Christ. In Christ. Listen to how often he uses this phrase in this passage. Verse verse 1, in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, in Christ. Verse 4, in Him. Verse 6, He made us accepted in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption. Verse 9, which He set forth in Christ. Verse 10, to unite all things in Him. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in Him. Herein lies the answer to our identity problems and our identity crisis. I find myself fully when I find myself in Him. He is where we find every spiritual blessing. There's a verse in verse 10 that's kind of hard to translate. It says, all things are summed up in him. That means all things are not summed up in me. That means there's another center of the universe, and I'm not at that center of the universe. And every week, I've got to come to worship with you guys and be reminded that there's a center of the universe, there's a throne over there at the center of the universe, and I am not on that throne. I need that reminder every single week. And when I find my proper place orbiting around that throne, worshiping that one throne, all of a sudden, my self-identity crisis just kind of dissipates because I find myself in him. So let's go back to that question. Who am I? Who has the right to answer that question? Let me tell you who has the right to answer that question. The one who made you. How many of you have a a shirt and there's a tag on the back of the shirt and the tag is made from the manufacturer this morning? Yeah, that's okay. Most of us, yeah? All right. Some of you are tailors or something. You just don't have it. Okay. Maybe you made your own shirt. For most of us, the guy who makes the thing gets to put his label on it, right? Who has the right to answer that question? The one who made you. Who has the right to answer this question? The one who manufactured you. The one who owns you. Friends, in my house, you open up my linen closet and my wife Julie's so organized. She's got all these different labels on all the different kinds of medicines that we have, stuff for colds and stuff for the, you know, all kinds of different ailments. She puts the labels on there. Can I come to your house and put my labels on your stuff? No, you don't want me to do that. Why? Because I don't own that house. The person who owns it gets to put the label on it. Friends, God owns you. It says here he purchased you. Right? How many of you bought a bunch of school supplies for your kids this week and you took them home and as soon as you got them home, you said, okay, honey, write the word Felicity right inside of your notebook. Write the word Michaela there. Why? She bought it. She gets to label it. The one who buys it gets to label it. The one who purchased you gets to label you. You catching my drift here? Who has the right to answer that question? The one who owns you? The one who chose you? The one who adopted you? The one who purchased you? The one who redeemed you? The one who forgave you? And the one who sealed you forever? He has the right to answer that question. Can I just talk to you teenagers for just a second? You know what the rest of them are thinking right now? I wish somebody would have told me this when I was younger. You have the chance to get it right now. Don't miss it. For all of us, you realize how powerful this is? Do You realize how different your life would be if you just believed what Ephesians 1 said is true about you? What if that was your soundtrack? So my challenge for all of us is to sit down this week and read the book of Ephesians. Just read it. Soak in what God says is true about you. Let that be your gospel soundtrack written by God himself. Amen? Could the worship team come, and as they come, I'd like to just read a poem. It's written by a man named David Ward. Let these words sink deep into your ears. Though I was born an orphan, abandoned and alone, enslaved and bound in darkness without a hope or home, the God of grace and mercy from his eternal throne ordained to be my father and claimed me as his own. That I might be adopted, the father sent his son to live in full obedience and die for what I've done. Now through his resurrection, through faith with him, I'm one, a member of his household. I am an heir, a son.